Welcome to a new episode of Trump Watch Sussex. We're recording here at the University of Sussex. My name is Melissa Milevsky. I'm a lecturer in U.S. history, and I'm joined today by Sam Solomon, um, a lecturer here in English. Our guests today are public intellectuals, writers, poets, um, and the founders of the Southwest Political Report, um, Matt Cedillo and Dr. Irene Monica Sanchez. Um, Matt and Irene, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. So today we're going to be talking about the border and about the politics of the Southwest. And we'll be thinking about how understanding the politics um, and history of the Southwest can help us better understand um, Trump's border policies, um, racism by Trump and by others in, in America today. Right. Yeah, this is this is Sam Solomon now. Um, I was wondering if we could start off, Matt and Irene, um, with you both just telling us a little bit about the Southwest Political Report, the website um, that you've started. So if you could tell us what it is and also how you decided to start it. So we began the Southwest Political Report in fall of 2016. And it came out of just some conversations we were having coming up to the election about how there's not a lot of news media agencies that focus on uh, the history, the politics, trying to like contextualize all of what was going on at that time into um, into the media. And so we were like, well, what do we do about it? And we made a blog and it's a news blog that focuses on the history, politics and current events of the Southwest. And I believe since we started it, obviously, Trump got elected a few months after we began it. And um, our goals remain the same to focus on the Southwest. But I think um, we reevaluated certain things um, to kind of fit with these times that we're living in uh, post-Trump. And as he's encouraged more and more um, hate and racism and, you know, trying to make people aware that it's all rooted in a very long history of um, anti-Mexican and the the sentiment against, you know, that there's foreigners and there's, you know, people are invading and that sort of thing. All that rhetoric he uses that, you know, is very harmful and it, it has violent consequences. Thank you very much. Um, and it sounds like this is a really important time to be um, doing the work that you're doing with the Southwest Political Report. On the note of kind of talking about history, I was wondering if you could Tell us a little bit about what some of kind of the important history that you think is is crucial to understanding what's going on today in regards to the border and in regards to kind of the Southwest. Well, I mean, I think one of the, the main things that we're trying, one of the main things we're trying to get across with the, the Southwest political report is that, um, that this history of anti-Mexican sentiment is actually rather foundational to the development of the American Southwest. Um, this, uh, these areas that we call the Southwest were the lands that once were once Mexico, the lands that were lost in the Mexican-American War. And the development of this area has been essentially, you know, a labor force that, you know, labors beneath labor, um, beneath what's traditionally called the working class, um, has been typically Mexican, whether it's migrant Mexican labor, whether it's um, the, the labor of Mexican-Americans, 
this, this this kind of you know this workforce that that exists that makes other workforces possible has always been dependent on on keeping Mexican labor cheap. And if I can add, when you go further back, um, I also teach Latino studies at the high school level, and most of my students are are of Mexican descent. And I always try to think about what are the most important things that they should know about history. And a lot of it, you know, that I found that they wanted to focus on was the violence that occurred that they didn't know about that occurred post, pre and post the Mexican-American War and before the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848. And after that, the period of lynching was so high in the Southwest, um, you know, Mexicans were, were being accused. And if you were just accused of theft, if you were accused of trespassing, that was punishable by, by lynch mob would, would kill you. There's always this idea that, that we don't belong here, whether you are here, like Matt said, you know, you could be here three generations, four generations. Your family could have been here before the Treaty of Guadalupe even happened when it was still Mexico, or you could be recent. The general idea is if you are Mexican or another Latino, like you don't belong here. Thank you very much. It's really interesting to think about what what students um, need to, what is important kind of for, for students to know. Mm-hmm. It really is, yeah. Well, I said, you know, there, there are these very important cases that people are becoming more aware about. So a case like, say, Mendez versus Westminster. But when Mendez versus Westminster is always brought up um, to make a comparison to something else, as opposed to put it in its own historical timeline. So to look at something like Mendez versus Westminster, would it be look at what happened before that, which would be the Lemon Grove incident? And then look what happened after that, which would be like the Chicano walkouts. So like this is kind of like what we're trying to do here. We're trying to put like these events in their timeline so that when Donald Trump as Mexicans are drug dealers and rapists, that's put in the timeline of Pete Wilson, put in the timeline of Joe Arpaio, that's put in the timeline of, you know, of Pat Buchanan, um, who, who started a lot of these politics about uh, America not being white enough, right, which was later echoed by Samuel Huntington and, and, and popularized in a big way by uh, Ann Coulter, who has chapters in her books uh, in Adios America that simply say 30 million Mexicans, you know. Donald Trump, years later, uh, makes a quip to, uh, to the prime minister of Japan that he's going to send him 25 million Mexicans and that's going to help, you know, Donald Trump's uh, re-election campaign. You know, like if I could just get rid of, if I could just get rid of 20 million Mexicans, I, you know, I'd be, I'd be uh, 25 million Mexicans. I'd be in a much better position. So this idea that America is not America because there's too many, you know, Mexicans here and too many brown people in general, but specifically too many Mexicans is, is, um, it has it has a history. It has a, it has a direct history. It's not just racism, generally speaking. It's a very specific thing. So, building on what you were just saying, I'm interested in kind of the use of um, of of racism um, and kind of border politics during the election. Why do you think Trump made so much kind of use of talking about the border, kind of? Um, using kind of um, racism um, against Mexicans during the election. Why did this play such a large role in the election? That was the whole basis of his campaign. It was it was his platform and he ran on that platform. And that is precisely why he won was because he came out the gate saying um, what he was going to do and who he was going to do it to. And so because of that, I think people get mistaken, like, oh, it was about you know, him saying he's going to bring jobs or he, him, you know, reaching out to 
to working class whites in the Midwest, all these other things. But if you look at a lot of his speeches, they are filled with, you know, this idea that, you know, we need to make make America great again. And the way we're going to do that is by, you know, getting rid of these these uh these foreigners, you know, these foreigners on our land. And so that is why he won. And he was appealing to his base by by doing that. Yeah. I think um it's very specific that we get into it. Like um it wasn't just that he said he was gonna build a wall. It's that he said Mexico would pay. And he would have these rallies and say Mexico will pay, Mexico will pay. Now whether or not people thought that would happen, it was a very cathartic thing for them to gather. In, in the thousands and scream, Mexico will pay, you know, Mexico will pay for all they've done to us. Right. So, I mean, this is, this is Donald Trump's essential thing is that this, this, um, you can, you can apply it to everything, which is that like, I'm the real victim here. Right. So, you know, Donald Trump's going to stand up because, you know, white people are the real victims here. Donald Trump's going to stand up because men are the real victims here. Donald Trump's going to stand up because Americans are the real victim here. Donald Trump at the very at the very apex of all of it. Donald Trump is the real victim here, right? And so like that that is as what he does. Um this question of the Mexican thing though, I think I think it's important to get into like why and how that happened. And I think that the big part of that was because Jeb Bush was running with the most explicitly open to um open to the to this vote uh campaign in like probably republican history he was cutting ads in spanish he was speaking spanish he, he announced in english and spanish he, he announced his his, his can, uh, candidacy in english spanish and spanish speech um and he was the presumed front runner and he was running in a way that according to kind of traditional political math was necessary to win he was running away like okay i need about 40 percent of this vote you know like i need 40 percent of what's called the latino vote um, and 65% of Latinos are Mexican. So in, in this country, so I, I'm going to need to, to appeal to this group of people. I know I can't get, I know I can't get polarity, but I can get a chunk of it. And if I get a chunk of it, I win the election. So he started, he started the primary already running against Hillary Clinton. So enter Donald Trump and Donald Trump has a long history of being extremely racist, but he doesn't have a particularly long history of being extremely racist towards Mexicans. It's not, it's not part of his, it's not part of his general way of going about things not to say that he had any good feelings but it wasn't like something that he put out there all the time constantly it wasn't like it was nothing like his presidential campaign which was very very focused and so i think that initially he was just trying to knock off jeb bush but the reason why jeb bush was doing that was because of demographics and the reason why this anti-mexican stuff took fire is again because of demographics he reached in and tapped into a fear of people who are worried that this country is not going to be white in the future and that exploded. It's a really interesting analysis of the election. Why do you think it was so effective what Trump did? So if it was kind of a strategy to kind of set himself apart from the rest of the Republican candidates, is it part of this kind of longer history and kind of context that we've been talking about? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely it's, it's part of a part of a longer history, part of um Part, you know, it's part of a long history. I mean, it also helps that he's Donald Trump and he's famous. I mean, you have candidates in the past like Tom Tancredo and a few others who who ran essentially on this, but they lack the charisma or they lack the star power. Or they lack the already famous quality of Donald Trump. But, you know, he 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 tapped into something that was that that's been that's been building up. You have politicians like uh, politicians like um, Steve King. 
who said uh, who said the thing about uh, who compared who compared uh, undocumented migrants to lazy dogs and talked about people coming over the borders with uh, calves the size of cantaloupes and just just bizarre statements, but deeply, deeply dehumanizing things. And this has been this has been you know kind of the ground that that Steve King stands on uh, is is just deeply, deeply anti you know anti southern border migrant, anti Mexican, very anti Central American as well. That's another big component that, that Trump has brought in since the election is that it's become very explicitly anti-Salvadorian in many ways. Um, that's been very that's been been, been huge. Um, but also, uh, you know, you have other you have other other political figures around Trump like uh, Chris Kobach, who is the you know the intellectual kind of mastermind behind SB 1070 and many other horrible racist schemes in the United States. Um, and Chris Kobach helped uh, was, was part of was the lead of. Trump's transition team. He helped build the team. You have Jeff, Jeff Sessions, who has a long history of being a complete Confederate, but also has a long history of being a border warrior um, of the highest order or the lowest order, however you want to frame that. So you have all kinds of people around Trump that are just, you know, Joe Pio, of course, stumping from the pardoning of Joe Pio. I mean, you have all these people just surround him. And of course, it, it emerges out of that history and it, it is effective, I think. I think it's effective, more effective than it would have been. Like this was always the way to get elected in California, in a part in bastions of California. This is always the way to get elected in Arizona. This is always the way to get elected in Texas. But it hasn't always been the way to get elected in the United States of America. I think the reason why this particular brand of politics, you know, the political reaction that emerges out of the Southwest has gone national is because the population has gone national. You're talking about growing Mexican populations in Oklahoma City, in Detroit, in, you know, in in New York, I mean, all over the country, where these populations have not previously been. So I think the reason why these politics are going national is because these numbers are going national. I mean, it's still mostly based in the Southwest, and that's making the Southwest a very different country than the rest of the country. But it's it, it's growing all over the place. So that I think is creating this kind of existential threat about you know a, a white future in the United States of America. Can you maybe just picking up on one of the things you were talking about there um, about the criminalization of um, of youth and particularly of young Chicano um, and other Latino boys? Um, if you could talk maybe about some of the mechanisms by which that works, and then if if you see, I'm just trying to link this into Trump, his discussion of you know bad hombres and and the Mexicans are criminals kind of discourse, if you see that picking up from actually not just discourse, but actual, you know, legal and policing mechanisms that that are in the Southwest. Do you know yeah, I, mean? I don't know if I've necessarily seen more of it. I just think it's something that's always there. So something I've noticed working with high school students, it's not much different since when I was in high school, where, you know, if you dress a certain way, a lot of my students will tell me like, miss, I got stopped, you know, leaving to get like an, a, I think like a Slurpee and Icy from this liquor store, you know, or this convenience store the other day, or I got stopped for this, they get searched, um, you know, just, just for looking suspicious. And I don't think that's anything new because, you know, when I go back and tell them, you know, hey, well, this, you know, this happened, you know, back in the day, you know, Mexicans used to be, you know, shot for basically being accused of trespassing, for being accused of theft. Um, there's been recent news where like there was a, a man, I think in Orange County, he was buying like mints or something and they thought he didn't pay for it. A cop was like, put those back, you know, and it's all, it was all on video. 
And um, he was like, I just paid for it. And then he found out the man had in fact paid for it. But because he was Chicano, right? And an older um, Chicano guy, like they, they just assumed he was stealing this undercover cop or this off duty cop. Um, but it happens to the students a lot. You know, once they're tagged as, as supposed gang members, which some of them are not, you know, um, it's almost like it's impossible to get away from, from that stigma. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily anything new we're dealing with, but during this time, it's just extremely hard because not only are you hearing these bad things maybe about yourself or you think these things about yourself as a young student in your community, you're also hearing it from the president that, you know, oh, these people are gangsters. Or even if you're young, I have students who are, you know, immigrants themselves and, um, you know, hearing that, you know, the, the president and all these people that are in power think this about you and your community and your family and who you are and, you know, where you come from. Um, you know, I have a lot of students who who are frankly angry about it. You know, they're like, well, that's not us. That's not the truth. You know, this is how we are. And so I feel like there's some pushback against that. I feel like there's more pushback against that than like people kind of falling into despair. So that's a good thing. <laughs> and I don't know if it's just because they were in the class learning about the history that they felt like that, or this is just something that's a general feeling. Um, but I do definitely see that there's resistance to those ideas that, you know, oh, we're bad hombres or we're this or we're that, because that's that's just not true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I think when we're talking about criminalization um, in the Southwest, I mean, you can't disconnect it completely from the rest of America. So when we're talking about like the targeting of, of young boys, I mean, it's kind of impossible to talk about the, the targeting of young brown boys. We're talking about also the, the targeting of young black boys. And it's really just. It's kind of this, this, these structures that exist out here. But as far as this particular strain is, is goes, I mean, it's really important to remember that the first state agency of in California of law enforcement that came together was the California Rangers. And they came together for this explicit purpose of hunting down the five Joaquins. So California state police were formed to hunt Mexicans. That's a literal fact. Um, and then you look at like these gang injunctions and you look at like these things that come down um, there was, there were, there were like infants on gang injunctions. This is, this is in California got exposed. This is a horrible, horrific, horrific, um, horrific, uh, just, just, I mean, just, just terrible. Just, I mean, like the, the things that are just, uh, they're, you know, they're Kafkaesque, I guess they're, just, they're, they're surreal. You can't believe that they're, that they're actually happening. There's, there's the everyday stuff. And then there's the things that like are just, um, so horrific. It boggles the imagination. Yeah, and what those gang injunctions do, what they what they can do is, they, you know, they destroy communities. So, like, if someone, you know, is accused of being one, it's like you kind of got to, you're forced to move outside of a certain area, and you're not allowed to move back. And so it breaks up families and communities, and just because you're presumed to be, you know, criminal. And, and then, like I said, that doesn't have to be true, and it is children who get accused of that, babies, um, you know, once you're kind of in a database where they, they're accusing you of being associated with some kind of criminal element, you're kind of stuck there. And it's very hard to get away from that label um, because because that's just the way the system set up. It's set up to lock them up to to do that to them. Now you have this situation where, you know, Latinos are still like have some of the lowest socioeconomic rates in the U.S., um, don't have access to certain things. Um, our education attainment levels are still pretty 
low. And so, you know, there's a lot of work we need to do to, to try to change that. And it's, it's becoming increasingly difficult in a time where, where we're being more criminalized. Thank you for sharing that. Another thing that we've noticed that you've um, been covering um, on the Southwest um, Political Report is um, Trump's policies around child separation. Um, and I w- we're wondering if there is anything in particular that you think is particularly kind of important in, re- in understanding kind of understanding what's going on there, kind of why it's occurring, how it's affecting um, communities. I mean, I think it's being implemented to to instill fear and and to split apart people. He even said he's using it as a, a deterrence so that uh, that way other people won't will think twice about crossing over um, into the U.S. And so you look at where the prisons are, the immigrant detention centers, and a lot of them, the majority of the people who are being incarcerated right now, um, those those uh, prisons are located in the southwest. And so the largest number um, of detainees from that are immigrants are in Texas and then Arizona and then California. Um, so that's not by <laughs> by mistake either. That's by design. And I think it, he's trying to use it as a deterrent. And he's come out as saying that he's come out as saying that he wants to basically deport anybody darker than a latte? Is that what he said? It was darker than a latte. Did you read that? No, <laughs> oh, yeah, he said that. And so, um, you know, he, this is just part of his plan and it, it, to to invoke this fear. And I, I think it's, it's the children in the detention centers. There's been raids going on. There's been a lot of raids going on. Um, and there always was, but now there's, there's more. <laughs> and um, I don't think that's getting a lot of media attention right now. But there are, there have been raids. People are being rounded up and, you know, taken people who are residents, <laughs> he's going back to, to look up people's cases. And that's kind of unheard of that people who are already naturalized, he's going back to see if um, there's any uh, discrepancies they can find. So then they can strip them of their citizenship and then deport them. I think he's testing the waters, to be honest. I think he wants to see how far he can take this. Uh, and, um, and, and he has to be stopped or, or he, he will, he will do the worst imaginable. He will, you know, he will do those things. Those things we talk about, those things that people call hyperbole, he will do them. I think that's a really um, strong warning. And I'm wondering along those lines, um, how you hear other media or political commentators describing Trump's racism um, and what you think they maybe get right, but also what they get wrong. Well, they don't call it what it is to begin with. A lot of them, they just kind of skirt around the issue saying, well, you know, should these, they, they make it a question of um, not necessarily being wrong to be racist or, or, you know, nativist and have these attitudes of, they would never call it white supremacy. <laughs> but, you know, it, it becomes more of like, oh, a question of morality, like how can we do this to children and, and that kind of thing. Um, but that doesn't get to the point where it's like talking specifically about how he's doing it to these children, right? About to this specific group of people. Um, and a lot of the people coming over from Central America too, um, it can't be ignored that a lot of them are indigenous people, right? Um, and so that was another thing that I know was brought up that, um, you know, there was a need at the border for 
for um, translators of, of different indigenous languages because a lot of the people coming over didn't speak English, but they also didn't speak Spanish. And that's something that I don't think um, people are talking about in the mass media, but I think it just became this like, think about the children, um, you know, it's it's not their fault and like reunite the families, but you know, then we're putting them in family detention centers, which was something under Obama that happened and has been happening for a very long time. Um, and so I don't think people get into specifics so much. I'm not sure what Matt has heard, but I haven't heard um, anyone really getting into the fact that, um, you know, this is just straight up racism because then I think it would force people to examine <laughs> their own their own selves. And I think that's something um, many people haven't done. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think people are right with the urgency. Um, a lot of people have been very urgent uh, about how just how horrible this is. Even even mainstream media sources have been just like, what are, what are an aberration is and how, how horrible, not, ab, not how ab, ab, abhorrent it is, not an aberration, how abhorrent this is um, and how destructive this is. I think that that, that has been right. I think some of the comparisons um, to things people are familiar with, which, you know, always the slavery and, and the Holocaust, um, it's right in terms of the sense of urgency. Like, don't let this, don't let something like that happen. Um, but it's incorrect because it's not putting in the right history. I mean, it, it's morally, some of that stuff's morally right, but it's totally incorrect. It's like factually incorrect. And it's going to keep you walking in circles because you're not actually addressing what's going on here. We keep referring to people at the border as like the migrant children or the immigrant children or the immigrants. That's not right. There is no immigrant history. There's no such thing as immigrant history. There's the history of Italians and how they became Italian-American. There's the history of Irish and Irish-Americans. There's the history of all kinds of different people who came here and became it. But there's no one cohesive immigrant history. No such thing exists. And by calling them the immigrants, all you end up doing is reframing it and start talking about something else immediately. And the Rio Grande is not Ellis Island. It simply isn't. And Mexican immigrants Honduran immigrants, Salvadoran immigrants, Guatemalan immigrants are also have different various experiences. Um, so by not getting into the details, by not getting to specifics, we can't ever understand anything. And it always gets bl just blended into this general thing about, oh, my God, we're a nation of immigrants. We can't do this to, 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 to these people. And it all turns into like, oh, my God, America has always been bad to POC. Oh, my God, without getting to specifics of what we're really looking at here. And those children at the border, they're not they're not immigrants in that sense they're they're not part of some other long trajectory of, of u.s xenophobia or something like that no these, these these children are coming out of 40 50 years of civil war that has been promoted by the united states of america that's who they are and if you really want to get like if you want to get a bigger picture than that they're coming out of 500 years of conquest these are the original people of this of part the of the world of the americas Putting in, being put in cages, you know, putting being put in 500-year-old cages. That's what's happening. That's what we're looking at. And that's the timeline this belongs to. And talking about – and trying to place it in anything else will only lose, lead to more confusion, more erasure, and ultimately more oppression. That's a really powerful, important point. Um, and just about the importance of specificity – here, I, I just want to kind of um, build on this and think about kind of Trump um, in relation to 
past kind of politics um, around around the border and around the Southwest. And as you've mentioned, there there has been kind of a lot of outrage um, around Trump's policies. How different are these policies from what's been going on under under Obama, as you briefly mentioned? Um, and how much is actually new, uh, would you say, of of Trump's policies? Well, what he most reminds me of, well, he, he's like Joe Arpaio in Arizona, but he's also like a He's also like Pete Wilson in California, the governor from the 90s. Um, it's just taking those kinds of politics to a national level under Pete Wilson was when that Prop 187 happened. Um, you know, driver's license got repealed in California because before that, undocumented folks were allowed to have driver's license. Um, bilingual education was banned um, during that time. Um, there was a ruling on affirmative action in California around that time. So to me, he's like, you know, he's like Pete Wilson, but like on a, a larger scale and it's impacting the entire U.S. at this point. Um, you know, what he's doing with um, the executive orders um, is something I don't remember seeing in my lifetime from a president um, to kind of... Um, push his own agenda without having to go through like proper checks and balances that are supposed to be, you know, guaranteed. Um, so he's doing all of that. He's kind of just doing what he wants. And, and as was mentioned, um, trying to see how far he can push it. And he's been pushing it pretty far at this point. Most politicians do something to check the vigilante impulses, um, that exist in the public. Right. So like, um, John McCain, right? Someone comes up to him. John McCain says, I don't trust Obama. He's an Arab. And then John McCain says, no, he's no, no, no. Don't say that. He's a good man, which is horrible. It's a horrible response for its own reasons. But the point was to try and check some kind of impulse. Donald Trump, on the other hand, doesn't check these impulses. He, he, he stokes them. He tries to inflame them on any given topic. He tries to inflame them. And that, I think, is the crucial difference. If you look at the policies, he's escalated a lot of things. As Irene said, he's just he's escalated a lot of things. Um, in terms of things that came before him, I mean, Barack Obama is, is no friend either to, to to these questions. I mean, Barack Obama is somebody who um, deported uh, you know millions of people. He's also he's also somebody just who said that seeing Mexican flags in the street angered him. He's also somebody who wouldn't allow um, undocumented people into the White House. You know, this, I mean, this just just terrible. But he wasn't doing what, what what Trump's doing, and he was the one at well at one point, and I don't know if Trump surpassed it, you know. But all these mass deportations occurred, the rise of of you know companies like Geo Corporation, all these people that are you know profiting off of the detention of of migrants, yeah. and that is his legacy. And I think people don't remember, or our memories are short, but. Um, but, you know, family detention was something that happened under him. Um, Joe Arpaio was putting people in tent cities during that time, too. Um, you know, and, and now they're talking about, you know, they're constructing these these facilities right now to do tent cities, basically on military basis to put families in now. Um, so this isn't anything new, but at the same time, um, it is it is a bit more concerning. But but that was Obama's legacy. There was a rise of those 
um, private detention centers. Um, up in Washington, where I used to live, you know, we had the Northwest Detention Center, um, you know, and that was run by GeoCorp. So we were, we've been protesting this for a very long time. And now, you know, they're getting more and more money and funding to, to house people, to, to, to imprison them, right? To, to make money off of having um, as many people as they can in these centers, in, in places that aren't even licensed to hold people. As a, as a follow-up to that, kind of, I mean, what kind of political responses do you think can combat what's, let's say, the kind of emergency that you're describing with this mainstreaming of this kind of racist violence um, and racist power, basically, anti, anti-Mexican, anti-Indigenous power? What kind of political response can respond to that emergency while recognizing that it's not new. I mean, do we just have to keep kind of saying that, um, pointing to the history, referring to it? I think that's a big part of it because I, I feel like that's what people don't know. Um, so at the Southwest Political Report, um, kind of been trying to go through a, a period of restructuring because I want I wanted to, and we wanted to make sure after discussions that what we're doing does focus on the Southwest and on those um, I guess those threads, you know, connecting history to the present times we're living in. And that's something I think that we need to be very um, deliberate about because, um, you know, in, in the media, you, like we were saying, you, you see where they're connecting it to all these other struggles, which is fine. But the fact is, you know, like um, Matt mentioned a few cases like Mendez versus Westminster, there was Hernandez in Texas. And, um, you know, people don't even know what those are. I think that, you know, having the report helps us do that because we, we have the opportunity to explain what those things are. Um, as far as making that known to a wider audience, um, I think we have to just keep pushing um, because people need to know that history and a lot of people don't. Even if you grew up here, um, you know, not everyone had access to take classes that would, would teach them their history to begin with. Um, and it's, like I said, it's a shame that we even have to keep fighting for that. It's, it's not something we should have to fight for, but in the fact is that we do. And I feel like we're fighting multiple battles on many fronts right now because of it. So, um, I'm not really sure what Matt thinks we can do besides well, rising up too. Yeah. But. <laughs> no one's going to rise up. People have to have a political education and orientation. And before they get a political education orientation, they just have to have a they have to have a uh, a basic grasp of of history, and we do not have a, a basic grasp of the most self evident history imaginable. So the first thing we need to do is start popularizing you know, popularizing these histories and getting everyone on board with this is the basic history of what happened. If someone says this, they are participating in this long line of history, this timeline. Do not change the subject. Do not begin talking about something else. This is what it's part of. And so that is kind of like step one in my mind. Um, and if that doesn't happen, then step two, step three, step four, step five will not happen. So get, getting people on board and confronting you know, these histories begins with people even acknowledging they exist or even people's, people's awareness of these histories because people really aren't aware. You know, They're aware that, that things happen, but they're not aware of – you know what it is. I mean, like, okay, so for instance, you know, in California, in Los Angeles, California, at the center, there's Pershing Square. Nobody's even offended there's a Pershing Square. 
Nobody even knows to be offended there's a Pershing Square. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. I think I think um just related to that, um, if each of you could say how you see your local work, I mean, because you both do well in varying ways, you do sort of community education, public education, but also community-based arts work, poetry, arts programming. Um, I know, Matt, you have a new um, role related to that. But how, how you see that fitting in with this, this picture of political activism, of political activism needing this kind of basic historical understanding, how you see poetry, arts work, community-based arts fitting in with Well, I feel like... A lot of what I do has already been doing that for a long time. Um, as far as the political report goes, what I want to do um, and what I have been working on is a lot of curriculum um, projects based on Chicano studies, ethnic studies, the history of what we're talking about. Because we used to have, to, we had a couple of teachers come up to us saying they use a political report in their classes, in their high school classes. And I'm like, this is a, a wonderful opportunity to help um, make this accessible. So my whole thing is always trying to make what I'm doing regarding history, regarding anything, the activism that I've done for many years to make it accessible. The work I'm doing doesn't even matter at a larger scale. Um, so at the end of the year, like I recorded a poetry video for my students. Um, I've been working on some other projects. We run an open mic that's open to the community in Pomona. It's called Poetry Fun. Um, just trying to promote it any way um, I can that history either through the work, through the poetry, through my teaching, through trying to build with other teachers that also need these resources um, and trying to create kind of like these curriculum banks where like if a teacher needs to go look up something on anti-Mexican violence, they could just go um, to this website and then it'll be like a bunch of resources on it. And so I want all of that linked to the political report. Um, I also have a section that I made on the political report for um, poetry and literary, um, and that also has a focus on the Southwest. So I'm kind of trying to redo that right now so that I can link it back to the political report. So, you know, if people want a poem on the history of, um, who knows, like uh, Mendez versus Westminster or something, you know, that you might be able to find it there eventually. Um, so I, I just want to make sure, um, you know, we use the political report to, to further that as much as we can to learning that history, to making it accessible to people on a much larger scale. Yeah, yeah everything she said, um, <laughs> that was wonderful. Uh, specifically <laughs> at the DAW, I am I, at, at this uh, Center for the Arts, I am now the literary director. And it is my intention, I, and I really can't stand words like um, inclusion or uh, or or, you know, I don't know, it's vague uh, diversity or just vague, vague words like that or empowering the community. You know, I really don't like that when people talk about empowering the community. That's like walking up to a small child and being like, oh, small child, do you know that you have like a song in your heart? Do you know that a fire burns within you? Let me unlock it for you. You know what I mean? That, that's ridiculous. Um, what I want to do, using another ridiculous metaphor, what I want to do is for as long as I'm there until they kick me out is make that place a hammer. And that can be used to build platforms, you know, that the community can use to build platforms and they can use to smash all that stands in their way. And that is how I envision it. Um, we're including high school students in, in, you know, in, in parts of the exhibits now. Um, 
through through poetry workshops. We're putting their poems next to artwork that goes up and sells for thousands of dollars. We're, um, you know, we're we're having workshops there. We're we're just trying to make we're doing everything we can to use. Where I'm, I'm, I, I, yeah, we, I, we're doing everything we can to use the literary arts as a, as a, as a vehicle to get them in. Cause you know, they're not necessarily going to be able to like learn to paint in like three or four months, something that can go up on the wall, but they can in that same time period, learn to write some pretty incredible poems um, and have those poems be, be a part of the exhibit um, that goes up. And we're doing this every single exhibit. It's not just one, it's not a one-time thing. We're doing it every exhibit from now on. That is why I'm there to do that. So um, that's what I'm doing in the city of Pomona, California. Um, we're trying to reach out more towards the Pomona Valley, towards uh, the San Gabriel Valley, uh, towards the Inland Empire, towards these places that don't traditionally um, aren't traditionally highlighted. I mean, which isn't to say that they aren't there, because their artwork always ends up going up. It always ends up going up in Boyle Heights. It goes up in El Sereno. It goes up in in East LA. It goes up, you know, it goes it goes up over there. You know, it's not that people aren't from there. They are from there, <laughs> but. But it always they have to go over there to express themselves. So we're gonna really try and say like, no, this is you know this is a this is this is a place too, and it has a lot of people in it. Well, thank you very much. I think we're out of time, but we really appreciate you um, sharing these really important and kind of powerful insights um, into the really kind of this importance of kind of specificity and history um, and thinking about the Southwest um, and borders um, during the Trump administration. Um, and um, so thank you very much for joining us. And um, for our listeners, please um, join us again for another episode of Trump Watch Sussex again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.